welcome to Handbags and Glad Rags, a podcast on gender, politics and popular culture with me, Rian E. Jones. And me, Ellie Davis. This week, we're going to be talking about women, youth and pop culture. The idea for this show partly came out of discussions Rian and I had when putting together the anthology of women's music writing under my thumb. A recurrent theme throughout the book was the figure of the fangirl and the ways this has been used to dismiss certain types of music or young women's love of music itself. This leads to broader questions about the figure of the young woman and how it functions in our culture beyond music. Joining us to discuss this, we have Claire Biddles and Caroline McGuinness. Claire Biddles is based in Glasgow and writes about music and fandom from a queer and feminist perspective. She is a regular contributor to The Wire magazine and edits edits the zine Fuck What You Love, which features writing on pop star crushes from women and LGBTQ plus people. Caroline is a writer and academic who teaches modern and contemporary literature at the University of Salford. She is the author of Northern Irish Writing After the Troubles, Intimacies, Affects, Pleasures, which will be published by Bloomsbury this summer. So thank you both for joining us. Okay, thanks, Ali. Um, In many of the essays that we brought together for Under My Thumb, it was obvious that youth was as important as gender, both in the sense that many of us began a lifelong obsession with music when we were young women, and in the sense that I think uh, one tends to be far more intensely invested in music when young. Um, I won't say over-invested, I'll say appropriately invested, proportionately invested um, in all kinds of popular culture. But it's also very easy to dismiss, to patronise and to mock the levels of investment that young people have in music and popular culture generally and the tastes that they have in these things. Cultural critics traditionally dismiss the credibility and significance of music, film and literature with largely teenage or female fan bases. This means that young female fans get hit from several angles uh, with the intersection of gender and youth making it particularly easy to patronise and dismiss the art and culture that young women consume. Or conversely, um, it can be viewed as a dangerous and corrupting influence. This latter aspect plays on the idea that young women, and often women in general, are lacking in both agency and critical thought, that we're merely passive receptacles for what we consume and inert matter to be acted upon. And you can see this everywhere from something as mundane as the worries over women reading Stephanie Mayer's Twilight uh, back in the day and E.L. James's Fifty Shades of Grey the anxiety that female readers might be getting the wrong idea uh, about semi-abusive relationships uh, rather than just reading these things critically or simply reading for escapism. I'm saying nothing about the literary merit of either of these books, by the way, uh, but the moral panic around women reading dodgy romances, uh, which is centuries old and sort of dates back to, uh, to Gothic fiction in some cases. And it seems to rely on the argument that women can't tell the difference between fictional fantasy and reality uh, and can't simply read for pleasure or out of interest or curiosity without our delicate brains being indelibly affected in some way. This cultural and political view of women as infantilized and lacking critical faculties or the ability to think independently is intensified in depictions of teenage girls, even though adolescence traditionally is a time for self-discovery, experimentation and the development of a distinct personality, the process of growing up. And to return to my starting point, many girls do this growing up through music, gaining an identity by defining ourselves as fans of an artist, band, scene or genre uh, by our allegiance to a certain subculture and what have you. 
And there have also been instances of young women reclaiming and asserting their own subjectivity within all this, using their youth to puncture the pomposity and entitlement of male narratives and perspectives. So uh, let's let's talk about all this. Thanks, Rian. Um, so I'm just going to start by asking about something that Rian talked quite a lot about in that introduction, um, which is the significance of the teenage fan. So what is the significance of the teenage fan in all of this? Um, the, the Manics seem like an obvious name to mention here, uh, not least because I've written so much on uh, being a fan of the band. And I know that uh, Claire has written a lot too. I think the Manics were notable for having a very early and very intense female following. And this affected how the band and their fans were received and represented in the largely male music press of the 90s. Um, there were obviously quite a few middle-aged male music journalists uh, who also obsessively adored the Manics. Um, and I remember being this, there being this absurd disparity between their kind of fandom, um, like credible 20 or 30-something male fandom uh, being valid, and the fandom of teenage girls being somehow cringy and ridiculous and a bit creepy. Um, and you see that distinction insisted on a lot. Um, the idea that young girls are liking things in the wrong way, um, liking them for, for damaging reasons or just for silly reasons. Um, whereas throughout Under My Thumb, the argument that we make uh, in that book is not just that women can be fans for, for non-frivolous reasons, for serious and, and emotionally intense reasons, um, and for similar reasons to men. But we also make the argument that liking things for frivolous reasons is fine. You know, it's perfectly OK. And in fact, it would be great if more men were open to liking things for frivolous reasons. Um, I think going back to the Manic specifically, um, there was often I mean, I, I grew up reading the 90s weekly music press and there was often open mockery of uh, teenage girl fans. So this was this was the way that teenage girl fans were presented rather than maybe asking the more interesting question of why the Manics, why this particular bunch of slightly ridiculous Welsh men resonated so much with a bunch of unhappy teenage girls around the world. Um, so that was frustrating. But even after the 90s, there was this uh, this less overt, patronising, uh, almost kind of fetishy um, attitude towards their teenage girl fans going on. Um, there's a, a retrospective of the Holy Bible from um, 2014, um, so not even in the 90s, much later, where uh, Taylor Parks references, um, and I'll quote, all those quiet young girls with big mad eyes in long-sleeved leopard print. Who can say to what extent the Manic Street Preachers were good or bad for them? Probably no one was saved or ruined, uh, which is just a, an astonishing line. Um, which, which How could lacks, we ever know? <laughs> just lacks any reflection uh, or any sort of self-awareness and it's the yeah it's the who can say that particularly infuriated me as uh, as one of these girls myself um the assumption that these mysterious objectified figures uh, lack the ability the capacity to articulate our own experience whereas you know mates read our stuff and we can tell you ourselves if we were ruined or saved through music the answer is undoubtedly both well yeah and I mean this happens all the time with other forms of fandom doesn't it mm-hmm. you know, when it's young girls liking things I think that's quite a common uh, thread through all of these discussions. Yeah, that's that. Those those kind of those male comments about the policing of yeah the acceptable way to enjoy culture. I think Caroline, you were going to talk about how um, some of your students feel about um, their status as music fans or how they 
experience fandom um, at the moment as uh, young women? Being involved in music scenes and, and fandom and how they were responded to. So if I share some of these things, it's sort of shared with their permission as well. So some of them were into metal. One of them was talking about always getting called basic for like an Ariana Grande. Um, and a lot of them, um, the, the experience of fandom was presented to them in either... Um, a constant inquisition about how much they knew about certain bands and um, constantly being quizzed if they were wearing a band t-shirt, constantly having to prove their own sort of legitimacy as fans and it not being a thing where you like this thing, but are do you, are you really, are you, are you sure? Do you know the B-side from now? You know, like it was just ridiculous. Um, and the other thing that they mentioned a lot was one of them said, who's really into metal was saying that nearly all the fans she met in that scene questioned whether or not she would be safe if she went to a gig as well. So they were saying, oh, you couldn't get in the mosh pit. You'd be destroyed, someone said to her. And that idea of, you know, either, either you don't know what you're talking about or the things you like are bad or you are in danger if you like these things. And these girls are, you know, um, I say girls, sort of young women, you know, um, all they want to do is talk about how their breadth of their taste in music. Like all they want to, except for, though I don't think I'm speaking to the one who said, I like really old music from the early 2010s. <laughs> I don't think I'm speaking to her anymore. <laughs> She's in trouble. Um, but there was a real sense of, they wanted to say, my taste in music's really broad. I'm interested in all these things, but in all the different ways that I'm interested in it, people find a way to denigrate my interest in them. And it said one of them, one of them talked about um, that the people said, to her, oh, do you really like K-pop because they're not speaking in English? You know, they're not singing in English. So there was always a, there was always a, are you sure you like this thing? But if you like it, then you don't like it. Um, and it was just, um, it was really sad for me to see after you know when you when you, I know the you know the the fact that the patriarchy still exists you know it's not a shock to any of us but whenever you still see the operations of it like you know 20 years after the same thing the same thing happened to you like I remember going to like a, a Mogwai concert in Belfast in the early 2000s and someone sort of said to me oh so your boyfriend this is why you're here I'm like no I, I actually I actually like these things just let me like it just piss off and let me you know I know Mogwai gigs you kind of stand there and like wait until you um feel nauseous but it just for me um these girls still being expected to perform their fandom in ways that men find acceptable I'm in the 2020s just um just reading the comments was 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 really difficult that they didn't have the, those sorts of um, those sorts of pleasures that they should be entitled to. Yeah, absolutely. It's but yeah, it's a policing of pleasure, isn't it? Like, and it's it's like we know how to do this. We don't need you guys to to tell you like to tell us how to appreciate music. And I think just going back to that point, Rianne, that you you said about under my thumb, like a really important part of that project of bringing together you know, all those stories was like about asserting the agency of the woman music fan, you know, like we'll, we'll use the music how we want to use it. You know, it might be that we, we just have a fucking great time dancing to it with our friends, you know, which is absolutely like, you know, a brilliant reason. Yeah. That's, that's a valid use of of art and culture. Yeah. to find (laughs) If you just want to have a good time, that's extremely important, both personally and politically, to be honest. Yeah.
narrativized or treated in the media just to bring up bring up something that's been kind of discussed in the media a bit recently which is the framing Britney Spears film and I don't know if any of if if some or all of us have seen it anyway it kind of you know there's a lot to say about it but it touches on some quite familiar things um the there was a recent Guardian article I don't know if you saw that that framed it as a particularly bad problem of the 2000s, um, this this kind of misogyny, of the kind of paparazzi, of the vilification of people like Britney and Paris Hilton and who were some of the other people involved in that? Amy, Amy Winehouse. Who's, sorry, Caroline? And Lindsay Lohan. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And s- sort of thinking about, there was a kind of visceral, there's a horrible, there's a horrible part in, Britney Spears in Framing Britney Spears where the, the she's being interviewed and one and the interviewer reads out this really hateful quote from a mother who says something like it talks about her, te- her the terrible influence Britney is having on her daughter and wishes death on her basically and it, this is read out to Britney and of course she cries when she hears this and it's such a it's such a scene of, of cruelty um and it feels like there was there's a sort of there was a real kind of visceral feeling of of hatred around these around someone like Britney Spears and is that is there is there something quite timeless about that there's something there's a sort of nerve there's a button being pushed by women like Britney Spears I think there definitely is I think it's just the way that that manifests changes over time um a I watched a really good uh, documentary series, I think it was on over Christmas on uh, BBC Two about um, celebrity in the uh, 21st century. And um, it was really interesting because it showed how the sort of rise of the of kind of tabloid culture that was present in a lot of the Britney documentary as well and was around a lot of the kind of other women at the time um, kind of tabloids hounding them and waiting for their every kind of fuck up and of course that was you know a lot of the kind of it girls of the time and then also I think Rian you mentioned Amy Winehouse and you know it was it was really it was really kind of 
really present at that time and really like I think you're right saying it was visceral um and this this program quite cleverly showed how it changed when Instagram uh, and Twitter came around that celebrities can now control their own image but now the kind of hatred comes from online trolls it doesn't come people are still kind of hounded you know and it comes from below the line on on the Instagram image and I think it's still that stuff is still kind of in in the press as well but it's perhaps a little less a little more sneaky maybe as kind of outlets and papers have taken on more of a kind of like in scare quotes feminist kind of stance perhaps (laughs) um or like some of their writers have are kind of more taken on more kind of feminist writers that kind of aside from the kind of daily mail um kind of side of things that kind of visceral hatred isn't as dominant but it's still there sneakily it's still there when people are checking up on certain celebrities you know is she doing the right thing is she kind of is she being a good role model again this like thing that nobody really asks for yeah I don't know if anybody else has got thoughts about that but I think it's definitely still there in some ways there's um there's a not there's a northern irish short story well novelist and short story writer called lucy caldwell and she had two collections and um, one of them called multitudes that was one of the first collections that i think has really taken the concerns of teenage girls really seriously it's about adolescence experience in Belfast, and she's got a new one coming out in a in a few months called intimacies that deals with the main focus is um adult women looking back on their teenage lives and there is a point of this um, in one of the stories um called words for things it's about how the protagonist thinks about what it was like to consume the shameful woman when you're a teenage girl and she looks up so she goes back and does loads of internet searches for everyone considered um jade goody amy winehouse monica Lewinsky, and what does it feel as a young woman to be told that women are only sort of um consumable for their shame and i've just I've, there's just a couple of lines that i just want to read because it says well my husband was gone i texted a new name to my friend anna nicole smith we'd spent the afternoon sending names back and forth tanya harding amy winehouse sharon doherty britney spears because the thing was it wasn't just monica Lewinsky; it was all the other women too who used to be sort of laughing stocks, who you just suddenly realised turned out to be something else entirely. And I think there is, you know, a whole generation of, of, of women who grew up in that kind of climate, and that's what I think the Guardian article did so well, who grew up in this the, this climate that sort of, um, that women somehow must have some sort of a shameful downfall, and that was their sort of, um, that was their cultural value and their... Um, kind of um currency and I'm wondering how that sort of obviously leads to sort of constraining of behaviors that's the sort of the, the climate that um you're used to and I'm wondering whether or not the um the, the culture and um, the Claire was talking about the sort of um what sort of put this the more controlled kind of version of the self that people are able to put out now on social media and obviously there's problems with that but allows people to kind of, you know, allows young women especially to kind of maybe sometimes take control of parts of their narrative and parts of the selves that they produce. Because I, whenever I was talking to my students about this, they were, they really talked about how certain people that they admired. So they talked about um, Kim Petras, 
Lizzo, um, and Billie Eilish. They were the three that they were that came up time and time again, and they really did talk a lot about how you know whether they were talking about you know mental health issues or you know kind of kind of um, body image issues and things like that. That there was a more of a lack of shame. So I feel like in a way that I was raised with shame everywhere. And now there's a lot less shame but I'm not sure that that could be me like being old and projecting I'm not sure if that's right or not and um, if there's less shame about teenage girls these days I don't know yeah I mean I definitely sense less shame around those things um and certainly like if I think about someone like uh, like Monica Lewinsky the way that she was treated you know by the media I mean, I was I was quite young at the time. I would have been sort of early adolescent, early teenage, my early teenage years. But it didn't. It was just seen as very normal, as very you know, it wasn't shocking. It was it was just the way that you know some a silly girl like that. You know, it was just the way you talked about someone like that. So I I do think, yeah, that that kind of reclaiming and control over narrative enabled by social media is does definitely seem to have helped and obviously Britney Spears is you know her Instagram account is is kind of (laughs) she uses that quite interestingly um in quite a kind of self-conscious way it feels like um you know playing with her own image a lot of the time which is which is you know very interesting if you look at how she's been treated um by the popular press um generally I thought it was quite interesting, a recent uh, post on Britney's Instagram um, of her and her two sons, who were obviously teenage boys, um, but she had kind of part of the kind of Instagram caption, which was about how much she loved them and how she was proud of them and stuff, which is very cute, um, was, uh, I don't post much of them um, because uh, they're kind of at the age where they're just feeling their way and finding their own lives out and I thought that that was very telling of the way that she had been treated and not really allowed that time obviously they're a little bit younger than she would have been at the time but um I thought that was quite telling and obviously a positive thing to do for her um yeah definitely I was I saw that post I was looking at that post today actually just this afternoon oh make me over Look at my face 
just thinking about the the 90s has made me realize because my, my experience of the idea of female shame I guess in, in the 90s and how it was uh, policed and presented was similar to what Caroline was saying and it, it's made me realize in answer to the initial question like I don't think it was just a product of the 2000s though that might have been when it sort of became accelerated or perhaps more visible um, I almost feel like it's been democratized at the moment with with social media which has obviously good and, and bad aspects but yeah I certainly remember being and I would have been 13 I think but I was really horrified at the treatment of Monica Lewinsky um, also when I was a bit older and um, Courtney Love was was someone that I, I kind of idolized and the way that she both was demonized like she was presented basically as a, a a bitch a murderer drug addict like everything you a bad mother um everything you can think of um but she I think was one of the first people that I saw making real attempts to push back on that and to control her own presentation whether she was doing that through her songs or through the way that she like presented herself in public but that um made me really aware of the media I guess and public culture in general as a, a site of struggle for women to control their own presentations and it, it does seem with things like Instagram um women have more tools at their disposal now than we had perhaps um when we were growing up which I think is a good thing though obviously there's there's negative um aspects to it as well and I think another thing about um about kind of Instagram and and TikTok of what I know about it which is not that <laughs> but <laughs> um <laughs> but I think a, a lot a lot that is positive about the democratize like you were saying the democratization so the, the positive side of that is that maybe we're not anymore seeing teenage girls as a homogenous group and because I think there's also a, a real I think somebody touched on it earlier there's like a real risk of to when we're trying to turn these narratives around there's a risk of kind of the fetishization of the teenage girl as like an idealized um kind of you know something to a kind of idealized thing to aspire to as grown women and I think that's kind of a, a tricky thing um but I think what what you kind of see on you know Instagram and TikTok and things like that is um young women teenagers um kind of expressing themselves in different ways and showing and allowing their kind of their voices to be heard in as different voices and I think people like you know you were saying Caroline people like you know, Lizzo, Kim Petras, Billie Eilish these kind of left of centre pop stars I mean they're huge pop stars but they're kind of they're seen to us who are a bit older as unusual because they're kind of doing their own thing in in a lot of ways I think that is like a huge kind of influence and and kind of permission in a way to be like you know you can do something weird on TikTok and you're probably going to find your people and I guess we did that in in our own ways like um kind of on Tumblr and and all of these kind of older fan spaces um and with fan fiction and, and things like that but I think that I think that it's more visible now um that young women are different kinds of people <laughs> you know which sounds like such a strange thing to say like oh now we see that young women half of half of teenagers are different people but you know what I mean like it's ridiculous to hear yourself saying that but that that seems to be the the kind of something that's happening quite recently mm. I, I find that a lot of teenage girls or the, the ones that I, I get to know about I guess 
um, are, are a lot more unapologetically weird and odd than I remember being as a as, or feeling able to be as a teenager, which I think is I think is glorious. I love how weird the kids are these days. Well, like, like I always think, I mean, this is a this is a recent thing that's very like old person talks about young things, but <laughs> um, the kind of re- um, um, the recent um, use of the Life Without Buildings song in the TikToks, um, a, a band from Glasgow in the kind of early two thousands. And um, these, all of these girls on TikTok have, have kind of like found this song and used this song and think that this song is really cool and using it, what was kind of an indie thing as like pop music. And, but it's, but they're kind of using it to it because it's really strange. It's like Sue Tompkins, the singer is like, got this really weird delivery and um, they're kind of using that as a, again, permission to kind of, be really weird on TikTok but get loads of views and like have it kind of spread really widely and I think yeah Rian you're totally right like stuff like that you would that would be like saved for like alone in your room (laughs) but now it's like getting thousands of views on TikTok which is cool yeah I I love an old person talking about it but (laughs) yeah similarly old person even older person talking about it but like you know such the the TikToks that I've seen it just it's been so impressive because obviously it's kind of exploded over lockdown hasn't it because people have had so much time to kind of just play around with these things um and yeah the creativity and and humor like they're so funny like young women are so funny I don't think this gets talked about enough you know um, I mean women are funnier than men anyway like I'm very happy to yeah. I will I will die on that hill um uh but, you know, young women in particular, we're just seeing this total, like, wonderful playfulness, creative creativity, and, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to shut up because I am sounding like old person talking <laughs> about young person thing. <laughs> the, um, the idea of repurposing songs has just reminded me of a point I was um, going to make earlier, which is a bit of an odd one, but it was when um, Trump had been... He hadn't gone yet, and this this was before the attempted um, insurrection... Um, but he had he had been voted out, and there were um, there was loads of footage on Twitter and Tumblr of um, people in the US just basically kind of dancing in the streets as though they'd, they'd been like liberated from a, a tyrannical regime. Um, and one of them, um, they were playing uh, Kelly Clarkson's song "Since You've Been Gone," and just like everyone was was dancing about, everyone was collectively yelling it like in a really happy, slightly drunk, performative way. And I just thought how brilliant it was to have that song, like a breakup song by a young woman to celebrate the downfall of a of a regime like you'd expect it well I don't know what you'd expect it to be like a, a, a folk song or something but I, I thought that was really interesting in the context of I think it's sort of it's past now but the the idea of the death of the protest song which just had loads of middle-aged white male journalists complaining that there was no political music anymore no proper songs like like when we were young um, and when you boiled that down it meant that you had to be a, a white male folk rock musician to write a protest song completely ignoring particularly women in blues, punk, hip hop, um, who've all written about their lived experience and sometimes like overtly their politics in ways that can qualify as protest songs. But yeah, I just thought it was brilliant to have a Kelly Clarkson breakup song be the anti, yeah, the celebratory anti-Trump song. Mm-hmm. I guess that takes us on to like, we were going to talk about subversive, um, the subversive potential of the teenage girl. Yeah, so yeah, we sort of had had some discussions about the subversive potential 
of the teenage girl or the young woman as a cultural figure. And so, you know, placing the teenage girl or the, the young woman into these cultural narratives and how that can kind of, you know, um, disrupt disrupt certain received truths or bring something else to to the narrative or to our perspectives on things. Um, yeah, and I know you have written about Shampoo, the group Shampoo and their role as the, the, the kind of, the role of Shampoo in the kind of very stodgy male-dominated Britpop scene. Um, sort of put it open to discussion. But yeah, we're also, um, I particular interest of mine and yours as well, Caroline, Dairy Girls, the, the sort of figure of the teenage girl in the context of the travels and, you know, so place these these young women have such a important role, it seems to me, in kind of unsettling these sort of fixed, quite pompous truths. I don't know if Rin maybe start with the shampoo kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean this this is even for me, shampoo are quite a niche um obscure 90s band um I, I thought they were great um despite being in their I'm sure they were like well into their 20s by the time they became famous but they had this sort of like bored schoolgirl, obnoxious schoolgirl aesthetic um which was quite cartoonish um their whole persona was about being bored about being truculent snotty troublemaking and this kind of parody of the teenage girl as delinquent as though they were sort of performing the pantomime version of themselves so I, I found them really interesting as a sort of mid-90s example of female representation before everything became subsumed by the Spice Girls and that sort of slightly toothless liberal feminism um, and also the fact that Britpop as, as it sort of wore on became so drab um, everyone began dressing like their own father so, so to have something like Shampoo and Kinnicky as well who are all about sort of lashings of leopard print makeup high heels um, that glam was something that I really um, appreciated and that kitsch, um, that kind of playfulness in amongst this sort of this very, um, very morose seriousness. Um, one of the things that also interested me retrospectively about Shampoo, because I didn't think about this at the time, um, but I've since come to realise they were completely manufactured, as in, you know, people wrote their songs for them, they were marketed, etc. Shock horror, pop band is marketed. Um, but what interested me about them was that they were willingly manufactured. Like there's a quote from um, from one of them, Jackie Blake, saying, um, if anyone's manufacturing us, it's ourselves. We knew what we wanted and set out to meet the people who could help us create it, a raw, punky, glamorous band, um, which is exactly what they were. So, I mean, this this idea that they were someone else's fantasy rather than, rather than two people who managed to live their own fantasy um, is slightly misguided. But, yeah, I, th- I think they were excellently subversive um another another hidden gem of the 90s yeah I love I love that period and I really love um I was just sort of thinking about all those sort of um mid 1990s sort of female fronted bands like like Elastica were my favorite I had the haircut um I really love I really love Lush actually and I think Lush are very much um do a revival um as well mm. just the way those you know what I really liked about it was just as you said like Kinnicky amazing sort of soundtrack to Night Out but was just the the pleasure and the lightness and the not taking yourselves too seriously and the fact that like Lush's song Lady Killers is all about you know like shouting back to some guy that's chatting you up and stuff like that it was just um 
it felt um it just felt so much different to music that took itself so seriously even when it was being even when it was about a very big house in the country it was still sort of thought it was something you know and I just love the you know the kind of the idea of the as you say like the clacking of the stilettos and the putting on your makeup and the pre-drinks with the girl, all that sort of stuff you know I and mean, it just um it felt like a like a like a really sort of wonderful moment that people don't talk about as part of those sorts of you know pofiest histories of of Britpop that men insist on writing. I mean to bring to bring that sort of the '90s aesthetic, which is obviously like really crucial to Derry Girls, and obviously that's a different thing. It's not music, but it's a kind of it's the sitcom kind of format. But it feels so deliberate um, that 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 you know the the kind of the perspective is very much placed with these four teenage girls and the teenage boy who's kind of on the periphery of it all which is what is partly what's so brilliant about it um and yeah like it, it plays with a lot of that 90s aesthetic actually doesn't it yeah and I think um whenever whenever it was sort of announced it was just a, a guy from our film department phoned me up and he was like you have to watch this new thing that's going to be on channel four and I was like yeah yeah and he was like it's about Northern Irish girls in the 1990s and I was like oh god oh god I have to watch it I was like I think I was actually at that take that concert um, and the Ulster Hall that they all go to um, so it was a bit too much of the of the identification you know kind of having grown up in, in mid-Ulster in the 1990s but I think um like obviously, if you were if you had your Irish studies head on, you know, and um, you would think about the nineteen nineties, the ceasefire between different things, you know, young women on the. Co- I'm sure the paper writes itself, really, doesn't it? You know, and I'm sure somebody's gonna write the paper on. Are you gonna write it, Caroline? No, 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 no. Do you know what? It would, it would be a bit too paint by numbers, wouldn't it? Like <laughs> in the afternoon, like, 
Um, but but I think that that moment, you know, where sort of anything anything could happen, and, and between two things, I think it's a really really interesting moment for kind of looking at and thinking about. Um, adolescence and thinking about like anything that it as you know like any of my work like I love anything that ingests like levity into the trouble to anything that basically shows that alongside everything things go on and what obviously most one of the most significant things about Derry Girls is the fact that they're so irreverent about all of these old life or death kind of shibboleths they're like you know like you know people are more concerned about their tanning beds than bombs people who are more concerned about a night out you know and it just um it spoke to me about some of my like most vivid memories from when I was when I was a wee one, which was um, my mum because she had a child used to drive her sisters um to the nightclub um in Lurgan, um so they used to be like putting on the makeup, Spanzai ballet, you know whatever, and this was like in the eighties in in Mid Ulster, you know what I mean, and the spirit of teenage girls to still go out, to still put on their makeup, to still enjoy themselves no matter in every single period of the troubles like I was um I was only after watching Good Vibrations there because I was teaching it this week and even in that you know like it doesn't do enough to depict women <laughs> there's problems in that film but there were women involved in the Belfast punk scene there were women going out right throughout the 80s and 90s so there was just something about Derry Girls that strikes to the in like sort of the enduring spirit of the teenage girl even when people tell you that your voice isn't worth heard they'll still go out anyway and I really I just really think that's a really radical act really yeah absolutely and I think like um sorry not to derail this too much in terms of because I don't particularly want to talk about my academic research but you know this does feel relevant um the, the interviews that I did with with women about their memories of the troubles the idea and this does kind of you know um link up some of the other stuff that we've been talking about the idea of normality or like the everyday or fun these are the things we want to talk about we don't want to talk about the big you know this this the things that everyone's writing the headlines about we know that that you know th- those these are the things that you know we want to tell us outside of the story and there was that there was something about like popular cult people women wanting to talk about the records that they bought and the nights out that they had and the clothes that they wore and all of that sort of stuff you know that being really important not just you know all frivolous stuff like really important and I love just in terms of like the emblem of the the particular kind of thing in Derry Girls specifically that I love is when the I think it's the final episode of like the last series where Bill Clinton is giving a speech to Derry and they all just like turn away from it and like run off and like get into their, you know, to, to sort of go and have fun or do whatever it is that they're doing. And it's to me, that just seems so like radical and subversive. It's like, this is what is important. These four girls and their boy mate, you know, um, but whenever you were, you were talking about, whenever you were saying about, you know, like something that you and I might have in common about teenage girls, like I thought you were going to talk about the most subversive teenage, you know, kind of young woman of all in Northern Irish politics. I thought you were about to talk about Fidel Castro in a miniskirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, God, yeah. I mean, where do we start about that? You best not get me onto Bernadette Devlin because, well, Michalski, I should say. Um because yeah, that that will derail us into talking into me talking about. It was just because I was, and I don't worry, we will sort of talk about other teenage girls. I'm sure in a second. <laughs> just because whenever I was a teenage girl, like I didn't know that she went to my school because she was so seen as such a subversive young woman because of the slapping of the home secretary and you know the you know everything else. Um, 
that she was seen as too much of a rebellious teenage girl that we would get ideas that if we knew a woman like her had been one of us that we you know who knows who we would slap you know what I mean that's really interesting and also Fidel Castro in a miniskirt speaks to some of that stuff the wide the stuff that we've been talking about the wider yeah. anxieties about femininity and young women yeah. you know like it being quite frightening and unsettling actually like and I think it's um there's maybe another interesting kind of thread from that with young women in pol- in politics yeah. and how they are taken seriously or otherwise um you know obviously Bernadette but um kind of more recently um I, I always think of there's um there's she wouldn't have been a teenager she would have been just 20 but there's um a, a politician uh the MP for Paisley oh, I can't remember her name Mary Black. Mary Black yeah Mary Black I remember when she was first elected um she was 20 years old and she'd and you know every everywhere was just talking about how she used to work in fish and chip shop and you know now she's an MP she just got a degree from (laughs) from Glasgow University and you know a politics degree but nobody talked about that and also the I think there's another kind of interesting thing here of of what we think of when we see teenage girls or young women that she was she's a lesbian and she was very much presenting as you know, you could tell that she was she, she was gay. You know, she would wear a suit and she would have her hair styled in a way which was very kind of like queer coded. And um, for those reasons as well, she wasn't taken so seriously. Um, so it's kind of that's another that's another kind of level of it where it's like you know, do you have to look a certain way respect a certain way that's respectable, which means straight, older you know often she's white but you know often kind of non-white like what experience do non-white women have and you know there's all these kind of levels of of kind of yeah respectability in in that space um and you're right the kind of the Fidel Castro in a miniskirt um kind of thing that was thrown at Bernadette Devlin was was very much playing on that thing where it's like, oh, she's a she's not only a leftist, <laughs> but she's she's a a young woman in a miniskirt. But it's that thing where it's like, yeah, it's like, what do you do for respectability? Well, absolutely, you can't really get there. Really, isn't you cannot get it right, can you? Because you you know you're a, you you know you dress soberly in a suit and you're you know you're not feminine enough. You, do, yeah. you know you wear the wrong kind of skirt or top. You're you're you know. I almost feel like there was a streak in the hostility to Corbynism of um, the, the sort of attitudes towards uh, Beatlemania, for example. There was this sort of he's being followed around by hordes of screaming young women. Yeah. yeah and not only are they screaming young women, they're also revolutionary socialists. Like, how, how could we? This man is dangerous. <laughs> I, was, I feel like there was a lot of that behind it as well. It was similar with the kind of Bernie thing recently, mm. as well, which is obviously an overlap, but... Um, you know, I kept seeing all these things on Instagram, like tits out for Bernie, which is funny, but also <laughs> I think it's like <laughs> obviously hilarious, but like, I think there was that thing as well of like, you know, all of these like young women, like, you know, I remember, I'm not particularly a fan of hers, but like Phoebe Bridges and, mm. um, and um, like all these kind of younger female um, musicians were kind of like coming out for Bernie. And it's like, you know, so is Bruce Springsteen, but, 
but he's like he's Bruce Springsteen so it's fine whereas like these kind of younger women who are playing at Bernie rallies it, again it's just like oh they're just being socialist to be like edge lords or something <laughs> <laughs> and it's like what do you have to do man you know <laughs> I think it's it's also sort of worth thinking about because a lot of my students are doing their first kind of forays into political activism and you know I'm sort of like a lot of work in their communities and things like that as well and the way that when they try to do radical activism, they are spoken to by some of those activists as well, including one of my students who used the phrase, they, t- they think of us like puppies to be trained. Um, and the way in which they see, like the, one of them talked about like when like, like people like Zara Sultana, um, Nadia Widom and AOC, they, they, they see the way that women are treated on the big stages whenever they're spoken down to as well but a lot of them who are involved who are like really involved in in, in local kind of politics in Salford we're just saying about their real like fight to be heard um, and their real the idea that whenever they try to bring up at some of their um meetings questions around um you know like sexism and harassment within these movements then they're they're, they're spoken about like people just don't want to hear about it as well and I think about my own context, obviously, people who wanted to work for like reproductive justice in Northern Ireland and are repeatedly told, we'll think about the serious stuff first and then we'll think about your little kind of, you know, feminist concerns as well, you know. Um, and it's just, again, it's just to, to see to see that again, to see women who are really prepared to get, you know, their hands dirty and get stuck into activism, be patronised again. It's just, um, it's just a bit, it's just a bit tough to take, you know. Kind of in relation to that, like the way that, um, me, me and a friend were talking about the, the way that our families would talk to us even as young women as teenagers about our political views and I don't know if any of you's had a kind of similar thing but you know my mum's like a classic liberal but she would so she would and still now kind of less so now but it still kind of thinks my views are a bit silly but kind of when I was you know a teenager and first becoming kind of politically aware mainly thanks to my interest in the Manic Street Preachers. <laughs> it was, you know, it was kind of a bit like, oh, well, you'll grow out of that. Or like, you'll your views will change when you get older. This is a bit of a phase. And also like, aren't you being just persuaded by this music that you like? And are you just trying to be, you know, are, are, are kind of half concerning, are you being a puppy that is being trained and half oh well as I'm older and I rather than kind of now she respects that I have different views but it's rather than kind of being like oh you do have these views again it's that that misunderstanding of young women as having their own or women as a whole of having their own thoughts and their own coming to their own conclusions Whenever I, whenever I was a, a teenage girl in Northern Ireland, the main thing that worried all of us was getting pregnant. It was the constant concern, you know, and um, it's only obviously the last few years that, it, that you could even, you know, do something about it. Um, and it was life changing and it was a constant concern um, for all of us. What would happen if you couldn't put your hand on a grand to go to England? What would happen if you bought the wrong pills from the wrong person? What happens if, God forbid, you went to a struck-off alcoholic doctor in the shankle? Like these were these were the concerns when we were teenagers. And there have been women who have stood, you know, women and young and young women and old who have stood um, and done that kind of activism for years. And it repeatedly wasn't taken seriously by any of the major political parties. And obviously, we know. 
what's happened at Stormont this week, um, and again, those issues and the, the, the issues, and I'm not saying that, you know, um, they're only issues for young women, but they are the, the, the worry that you can't afford to do something about being pregnant is a young woman's issue. It's an issue for a woman who can't go to the bank and get an overdraft. It's a young woman's issue. And if it continue, you know, if, if, if people don't take it seriously, then it will continue to be treated like the sort of um, political football that it's being um, treated at, at the moment, um, even this week. So, sorry. That's my pro-choice rant for, for the day. No, totally. I remember being really young myself and finding out about the lack of access to abortion in Northern Ireland. And it was from, again, like of all things, it was because I used to subscribe to Just 17 magazine. Um, and one one copy came to my house and it had something like maybe it had like a like a pamphlet on access to abortion or something. And it had on it. This isn't this will not be available in Northern Ireland, which struck me as odd aged like maybe 13 or 14 as I was asked my mother about why this was um, both my parents were like hugely far left. So I didn't have um, in contrast to Claire's experience, I didn't have any of the sort of patronizing. Oh, bless you, dear. Um, but yeah, I remember my mother explaining to me about if if I was growing up in Northern Ireland, which which blew my mind because I was like, but it's it's just over there. Like you're not talking about this bizarre country that that is incredibly different from from our own. Um, so the the idea that someone my age and in my sort of working class circumstances um, would not be allowed access to abortion blew my mind. And it was I think for for many years it was really foremost in my mind as this is an issue that I want all political parties to take seriously. I want men to think about it. I want older people to, to think about it. Um, I mean, they, they very rarely do, but it's, it's still something that's, yeah, I just think it's such a glaring immediate um, injustice that it's something everyone should, uh, should rally around. And I think also the sort of the the specter of the mother and baby homes as well, I think is something that with um, kind of the inquiries north and south as well. And, and an organisation that I'm involved, we had um, Maria Enright come to talk about the way that women, um, she's a, a, a law professor at Birmingham, to talk about how young women were you know, kind of coerced into kind of giving, giving their babies up as well. So I think... For me, anyway, the sort of the, the so this is really grim. So that the, <laughs> the experience of being a teenage girl has to be um, on both levels. It has to be on the level pop culturally, what you're involved in subculturally, but it also has to be the experience of continually being under sort of bodily threat as well. And I think um, the fact that I think it's great that we're talking about teenage girls as this time of you know celebration as well. But I especially think that obviously the not just events of the last few weeks, it's the continual feeling of what it feels like to have your sort of um, your, your body under threat um, of, um, you know, sort of not what's happening at the moment, but what's been happening, you know, since time immemorial. But the way in which being a teenage girl is also to experience um, continual vulnerability, um, warnings about your own bodily integrity, warnings. I think I saw recently about a, about a school where girls were told, you know, you're making the teachers feel uncomfortable with the way that you're dressed. And that you are, you're always sort of um, both vulnerable and, you know, you have to continually be on your guard. Um, for, I know all women do at all stages of life, but I think there's something really acute about um, being a teenage girl and the way you're, the way you're read um, in the world as well. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's, that's such a great and important point. And I think it does kind of tie together, even, you know, some of the stuff around bringing forcing the presence into the cultural narratives and actually you know 
I mean, I don't think there was an abortion storyline in Derry Girls, for example, was there? But like, I can see how that, you know, if there was going to be a, like set, making sex relationships everyday life, which abortion, reproductive health is part of everyday life, you know, making those what we mean by politics, you know, when we talk about politics, when we talk about, you know, that is what we what we mean. And, and so much of the policing around women's bodies, you know, I mean, it happens in all you know, in, in all spheres, doesn't it, really? I mean, you know. Um... I'm kind of thinking as well about, I, I guess this is a cross-gender, but the um, the kind of constant denial in, in the press, especially the highly transphobic press about um, trans children and teenagers not having access to, I mean, there's a huge trans healthcare uh, crisis in this country, but... Um, young trans people not being trusted um, and it's and it's a real it's a real kind of not being trusted with what happens with their bodies and not being trusted with making their own decisions there's so many kind of crossed things there where it's like you know how do you know that you are that you're trans how do you know that you want to take these hormone blockers like how can you be trusted and it's 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 another thing that's just like it's making it's making teenagers bodies this political minefield um again it's across genders but it's it's really concerning um and it's really concerning again in a kind of construct concern trolley kind of way especially mm. in the media yeah i think in general not being not being taken seriously whether that's not having your politics taken seriously or not having your bodily integrity taken seriously at a time in your life when you don't have much recourse to anything else like you 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 are not really able to live independently it's difficult to be financially independent um so really all you can do is ask to be taken seriously and if if that's denied to you then yeah being a teenager is uh, is pretty hellish i remember we were a couple of days ago we were watching um this uh this very I was watching a very early Keanu Reeves film with my friends because that's we watch Keanu Reeves films every Wednesday um <laughs> together I was watching a very early one where um his character is he he is an, a 40 year old guy and he goes back to being 17 and uh and Keanu Reeves plays a 17 year old and we were kind of talking in our group like I was like, I would, you couldn't fucking pay me to be 17. <laughs> Cause this guy's like, Oh, I just really want to be 17. And, um, and you know, my friends are like, a few of them were like, one of them was like, Oh, 17 was quite good. Like six, 13 to 16 bad. So it's just like this. And then we kind of realized that we were all women. <laughs> so it's like, maybe, maybe being a teenage boy was, is less hellish, but it was just like really funny how we realized that like, absolutely not going back to that (laughs) it's not aspirational (laughs) no over 17 actually wasn't a bad year for me (laughs) i was gonna say 17 i I wouldn't mind being 17 again 14 no but 14 14 14 is the absolute worst worst. yeah definitely for me anyway but i do think that we can kind of we can kind of like take the you know from our perspectives as older than teenagers we can kind of take certain things from the kind of the kind of teen teen girl spirit and you know whether that's kind of like the letting ourselves be more weird (laughs) in public like today's teens 
uh, or the kind of like the the kind of embracing things for pleasure only or kind of again to kind of digress and talk a bit about my work but the kind of zines that I make about pop star crushes tends to be people of all kinds of ages talking about um, how embracing being horny for pop stars has often brought about queer realizations in their life or brought about kind of other great changes they've gone on to study things because they've they can trace it back to being horny for a pop star and you know or just like I just really like looking at this person they're hot that we're all everybody writing for that is a fangirl but none of hardly any of us are teenagers but we're kind of taking that spirit that fangirl spirit and applying it to our lives yeah it feels like there's a kind of like owning of subjectivity in that, you know, it's saying actually, yeah. And, and using that to sort of develop, I don't know, to kind of make some kind of statement yeah. of agency. Yeah. I think my, my, um, the, my chosen form of doing that is saying things like, oh, the Spice Girls are better than like the Clash or something like that's my kind of, uh, <laughs> that's the kind of thing I like to, do, to channel my, uh, my teenage subversive, uh, energy <laughs> oh, definitely I felt I felt hugely liberated when I was able to finally tell an ex-boyfriend that they thought the fall were really boring oh don't get me started <laughs> <laughs> and I, I say this as a fan of Howard Devoto you know but I, I can't deal with the fall sorry I actually love the fall but I <laughs> completely accept that it is the same song over and over again a lot of times and I think that's the thing as well like you can be it's fun to be a fan of things that like that boys like you know in mm. But be like, I can be cri- more critical about it than you. <laughs> like, yes. you know, I can hold this. Like, I I love a lot of things that are, like very like male fan coded, which is kind of why I hate the, the thing that goes around on Twitter a lot, where it's like, oh, this is music for men. And it's like, well, I actually love Radiohead, <laughs> but it's like, but you can also the the freedom of being like a female fan of these things is being a bit like, ah, oh, but like, it's a bit annoying in a in the same way <laughs> you know you can be a bit more honest about it I guess and and have that kind of that put on that kind of bravado yeah I do this with music and with political theory as well <laughs> good to do it with political theory <laughs> it feels like a takeaway from that like last little bit of the discussion is like let women tell their own stories like whatever music they like and do what they want with their bodies and and leave us alone basically okay uh join us again on the next episode of handbags and glad rags thank you for listening I just